Well, welcome everybody. If you're here visiting, if you're watching on Facebook, if you're listening to the podcast, we're really glad you're here. My name is John Ray. I'm one of the one of the guys, the, the people that um, helps provide leadership for Grace, it's in particular around teaching. And we're, uh, we're really glad you've chosen to be here with us this morning and walk your faith out with this community. You know, my family largely has avoided military service, not because of any issue of conscientiousness or, or anything like that, just because we just seem to fall with all the men on the race side seem to age at, whether you call it the right or the wrong time, either too early or too late to be drafted into the major wars throughout that. Now, on my mom's side, it was a different story. But you don't have to be a soldier. You don't have to have a family with military background to know that war is hell, that it is destructive and violent beyond all comprehension with that. And in particular, civil wars seem to have embody all the worst elements of all war together. Civil wars do certain things within communities that other wars, even as evil as they are, don't. The hatred that we can feel as human beings towards those we judge as being a traitor, as being disloyal, someone who was once one of us but has betrayed us, is a hatred of a particular depth and character. Now, if you're here following along with us this summer, we're, we're going through Acts, and we're calling it Re-Acts. It's us asking Acts questions, and then letting the book of Acts ask us questions as we learn and continue to learn how to be a church, how to be the church, how to walk out this life of community together. As Eugene Peterson says, we are a colony of life in a country of death. How do we fulfill that role? How do we flourish in that? And so, if you've been with us this summer, we've seen that Jesus has commissioned his disciples to spread the message. We started off with the Great Commission in the, book, the end of the book of Matthew, and that how the church wrestled with how to replace Judas, and we talked about that. And then, then they have this experience with the Holy Spirit, which is almost indescribable, which we're still learning about, still walking out. And then we get to this part where we see this, this church is described in these almost utopian terms. Like, like beyond belief, the way that their unity, their love for one another was expressed. Something that seems almost incomprehensible within our divided, segmented society today. But it doesn't stay there. That, that, wasn't, that wasn't the end. The church then starts to encounter persecution and they start to have to make decisions on whether they're going to keep proclaiming this message, how they're going to do that. And then the persecution not only, be, or the, the pressure, the tension, not only is from the outside, but starts to become with the inside. And that's what we see today, is we're going to see this, this tension start to come up from the inside, not just from the outside. Now... So, before we get into the next part, I need to tell you, I ask permission to do this, okay? With the teaching team, um, I kind of geeked out on the history part of this uh, in prepping, and the teaching team, and I, and, and I quickly said, 
you know, I won't do that on Sunday morning. They're like, no, John, it's okay. You can geek out on Sunday morning. So give me, give me just five minutes to geek out here on this, okay? Because as a theologian and a historian, I'm like blown away by some of the stuff that I've learned recently about this. So I just got to teach the intertestamental period in a Bible school. How many of you have studied the intertestamental period? That period, but from the end of Malachi to the beginning of Matthew, it's roughly 400, 430 years with that. And, and all that happened to the Jewish people that was happening in, in the land that we call Israel now, during that time that, that set up in many ways the, the ministry of Jesus. And we have this whole section in certain Bibles, Catholic and Orthodox Bibles, called the Apocrypha or the Pseudepigrapha. You don't get to use that word often. Um, the Pseudepigrapha, which are these texts which describe or were written during that time that Catholics and Orthodox will, will often have in their Bible. They don't treat it as equal to Scripture that we do, but as something supplemental to Scripture, but it's in their Bible. So they have these books, and, they're, and they're, some of them are historical, 1st and 2nd and 3rd and 4th Maccabees that talk about the Hesmondean uh, kingdom that goes through there. Others are just like somebody was smoking dope when they wrote this stuff, like Bell and the Dragon and some of the visions that they have. And you read them and you're like, okay, that kind of smells biblical, but not really. Like it's kind of got the same format in a way and it's got some of the same characters, but you're like, I'm pretty sure I know why this didn't make the cut. (laughs) You know, I I can, it's pretty clear that, that this, is, this, is, this is minor league compared to the major league with it. But there's still good stuff there, and it still does tell the story that's so important to us as far as background to know before we get here. And in particular, what I want to talk about this morning, just for a brief minute, stay with me, is the book of Maccabees or the story of the Maccabees. So, so when we get to the end of Malachi... The Persians are still in control. Um, Cyrus is, we, we all know about Nehemiah and, the, and bringing the people out of the Babylonian Empire and rebuilding the temple and resettling the Jews, right? So they've kind of wandered back into Jerusalem, rebuilt the temple during this time, but it's not anything like it was before. It's not like the, the, the temple from Solomon, the temple from David. They even say, the historians, that the people wept when they saw the finish the second temple, which is a temple we know in the New Testament, because it just lacked in comparison to Solomon's temple, the original one. But the Jews are back, but in the meantime, there's a huge shift in the geopolitical world order during this time, okay? This guy named Alexander the Great. How many of you knew that Alexander the Great was in the Bible? Well, he's in the Pseudepigrapha, so kind of in the Bible, but... But he comes in and he takes over all, all the modern kind of Western known world at that time. You know, his, his ascent is, is just like a meteor. He, he takes over things so quickly. And then when he dies, he divides his kingdom up among his generals. And so his generals are ruling in different places in what was the Greek empire, Alexander's kingdom with this. And and in particular, there is a group that takes over the land of Israel with this. And these guys, now the Greeks, you have to understand, the Greeks are zealous missionaries for Greek culture. So whereas the former rulers were kind of fine, hey, yeah, I'll I'll write you a check, go build your temple, just send us a tribute, and we're all cool. 
Like, you can just do your Jew thing over there. We'll do our thing over here. Don't get in any wars. You know, send soldiers when we need them. Keep paying your tributes, and you're good. The Greeks would have none of that. The Greeks are like, okay, everybody, we're going to eat us some gyros. Like, that's it. That's going to be the national food. We're all going to wear togas. We're all going to do this thing, right? So they were intent on what we call Hellenizing or making Greek all of their empire. So this means they go into Jerusalem and see the Jews, the Hebrews, practicing temple worship, circumcising their kids, abstaining from certain foods, being monotheistic in their worship, and they're like, yeah, no more of that. We ain't doing that anymore. So they build a Colosseum at the base of the Temple Mount. The Colosseum was not just a place for athletics, but it was a place where Greek culture was spread. The Hellenization was so ruthlessly enforced upon the people that there are despicable acts that happened. And if you, and if you really want to know, study what they did. But, I mean, it's, it's honestly, it's, it's so disturbing some of the things that they would do in enforcing this that um, we really, well, we could talk about it. We're not going to talk about it this morning. So, but it was, just, let's just say it was ruthless in how they did it. And even to the point where this one particular Greek ruler, Antiochus Epiphanes, which Antiochus Epiphanes, how, do, how would you like to name yourself? Yeah, my name is Antioch, uh, the manifestation of God. That's what Epiphanes mean. So he named himself, I am Antioch, manifestation of God, ruler of the kingdom. Now the people behind his back would call him um, Antioch Epimanes, not Epiphanes, but Epimanes, which means Antioch, the crazy one. <laughs> so they, they have this little wordplay on him. But so this dude, he's so into the Greek culture, he goes in and slaughters a pig on the Holy of Holies, on the temple. Like the worst single thing you could do, the most offensive thing that you could do in Jewish culture, he does it. Like, and he's proud of it. He boasts it. Well, so this is, this is tearing the Jewish community apart. Because you have people who are there. Now, and, and just see if this doesn't kind of sound like where we're living today. This is where history gets real for us. There were the people there who were saying, look, we know it's bad, but these guys, these guys rule. And if we're going to survive at all, we need to compromise. If, they're going to, if we're going to survive, if we're going to have anything left of our culture, and we've seen God deliver, but in the meantime, we're going to need to compromise. So we're going to need to go along. We're going to need to eat their food. We're going to need to read their stuff. We're going to need to sing their songs. We're going to need to kind of become outwardly Greek so that inwardly we can maintain our position, we can maintain our religion, that, that they'll let us do. Because eventually they started to compromise and they were like, okay, look, you guys can still have your temple if we get to appoint the priest. But if we're going to appoint you, you you got you, you to speak Greek, act Greek, think Greek. And so there was this group of Jews who were called the Hellenists. They were the ones who, out of the conviction, their moral conviction said, look, for us to survive, we need to compromise. 
But there was a whole other group of people. And these are the people we get the Pharisees from. So the Hellenists is, is who the Sadducees are. When we get in the New Testament, we think it's Sadducees and Pharisees. Well, the Sadducees are the Hellenists, by and large. The Pharisees, they're the true believers. They're the fundamentalists. They're the hell no to Hellenism, okay? Like they, come on, that was kind of funny. Um, they're the ones who are rejecting this. They're saying, no, the only way we're going to survive is to stay pure Hebrew, 100%. We're going to keep our Hebrew language. We're going to keep our food. We're going to keep our circumcision. We're going to do it all. We ain't running around naked, no Colosseum. Like, we're going to stay Hebrew. Make Israel great again. 100%. Right? Those are the Pharisees. Well, and I mean, and, and so these guys come in, and this is the book of Maccabees tells all this. Like, this guy named Judah the Hammer, who's a Hasmondean, and he comes in, and he cleans house and kicks the Greeks out and, 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 and has retribution on the Hellenists and he rules for a while, but then he gets kicked back out. And then we get to the book of Matthew. So Herod, when we get to Herod, what we need to understand is Herod is appointed by these, by, well, eventually the Romans come in, kick the Greeks out, but the Romans adapt Greek culture, okay? So when the Romans take over, they basically just impose their political and military might, but culturally, they're Greek wannabes. They, maintain, they even maintain the Greek language. So the Romans, even though we think of the Romans as the oppressors here, the tension is largely in the New Testament between the Hellenist or the Greek-thinking-speaking people and the Hebrew or Aramaic-speaking people with that. But because, again, we, we close the book at Malachi and we pick up at Matthew, we miss all that. We don't understand the context that it's going into. So, thank you for letting me geek out there a little bit, because I've been really excited about that. So, um, so, anyway, so we get to our text this week, and now when we read it, now when we read that there's tension between the Hebrews the Hebrew speaking and the Hellenist, it's like, oh, wait a minute. This, isn't, this just isn't over language. This is over 400 years of civil war. These two groups have been literally in a culturally and sometimes military civil war with each other. Their ancestors have killed each other. They have excommunicated each other. They have dismissed each other. They have oppressed each other. They have despised each other. For over 400 years. And then this Holy Spirit shows up. The church brings all these people into one body. And for the first time, probably in 600 years maybe, they're back together. This is incredible, y'all, with what the Holy Spirit is doing in this community. And so, we have to ask this question, or the big idea here is, the gospel either heals our deepest divisions, or what good is it? 
Like if, if there is some division, if there is some hatred, if there is some animosity, if there is some division that exists within us and as the church that can't be healed by the Holy Spirit, well then really nothing can be healed. Our heritage, our history, and the promise of Scripture is that there is no animosity. There is no division. There is no wound. There is nothing that separates not just us from God, but us from each other that cannot be healed. And listen, we talk a lot about that, right, in the sense of racism, or the, the tension between genders, or classes, or political parties. And listen, all those need to be healed. But in some ways, just, there's no church, or there's no hurt like this church hurt. There's no hurt like this civil war hurt. There's no hurt like being betrayed by someone you call a sister or a brother. Someone who, who, who for all intents and purposes was one of you, and then did something that made them an enemy. Chose something, went somewhere, married somebody, did something. Because our expectation with those that we identify with is that we are the same. And so we kind of act on that mutuality. And when that trust is broken, that is one of the foundational trusts of humanness is the trust of our group. And if the gospel can't heal that, what are we doing? Why are we even trying? But that's the promise that we see here, is that there is zero, nothing, no hurt, no division, no war, no animosity, that the gospel, that God, that the Holy Spirit cannot heal. Well, let's, let's look at the text. And it's short text this week, so because it's, it's really exciting. Here we go. Acts chapter 6, we're reading from the message, just the first seven verses. During this time, as the disciples were increasing in numbers by leaps and bounds, hard feelings developed among the Greek-speaking believers, the Hellenists, right? We know who they are now towards the Hebrew-speaking believers because their widows were being discriminated against in the daily food lines. These old patterns, these old habits, these old hurts are emerging even in the context of this new community of the church. So the 12 called a meeting of the disciples now, when you hear disciples here, hear all community, the whole community, men, women, everybody, okay? This is not a separate group. The apostles are the 12. The disciples is everybody else. They said, it wouldn't be right for us to abandon our responsibilities for preaching and teaching the word of God to help with the care of the poor. So friends, choose seven men from among you to whom everyone trusts, men full of the Holy Spirit and good sense, and will assign them this task. Meanwhile, we'll stick to our assigned task of prayer and speaking God's word. The congregation thought that this was a great idea. So they went ahead and chose Stephen, a man full of the faith and the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, not, not Timon from Lion's Tail, but Timon, uh, Parmenius, Nicholas, and, who was a convert from Antioch. 
Then they presented them to the apostles, praying. The apostles laid hand on them, commissioned them for the task. The word of God prospered. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased dramatically. Not least, a great number of priests submitted themselves to the faith. Now again, if we don't know the history and we don't know what's going on culturally, this just seems like another organizational chart. This seems like a reflection of what Abraham did when his uh, father-in-law said, hey, Abe, like, you got to take a break, man. You need some people, so choose some people among you to rule over and do the stuff, right? It sounds like that. That's not what's happening on. That's not what's going on. I mean, it is, organizationally. That's not the big message here. The first thing that we see is that the honeymoon is over, but the church is growing, is maturing. And it takes addressing these kinds of tensions in order for the church to mature. Now, for us as a church, this is scary. We don't like conflict. We, because, right, we've already established, ain't no war like civil war, and ain't no hurt like church hurt. So we, as a tendency, as a group, avoid confrontation at all cost. We can't do that, y'all. It's already here. There is conflict here in this church. And I don't say that because we're exceptional. I say because we are a church. We can't be a church without conflict, okay? The choice is, what are we going to do with it? Are we going to ignore it? Are we going to make that the main thing, both two sides, same coin? Or are we going to let this be something that helps us grow into the fullness, more into the fullness of God, more into the fullness of God wants? And we see that the church is learning that. And you notice here... Remember before the Holy Spirit when they were choosing one of the, to replace Judas? Remember how they did that? Casting lots, right? How crazy is that? We never see that again. They, they learned their lesson here. They're like, yeah, that whole casting. I'm wondering if Matthias is sitting over in the corner going, sorry guys. <laughs> like, like he wishes he had been picked some other way than lots. <laughs> but anyway, so they learned and they submit this to the crowd. So in a way we see this I don't know, if, I don't know how they, if they took a vote, if they took a poll. We don't know if it was unanimous. It seems like it was. It seems like it at least had consensus that these seven guys were chosen. But the church is learning and growing through tension. It's learning and growing through the things that it encounters with that. That's the first thing we see. Um, the second thing we see is that this conflict, and it kind of goes along with the first, doesn't diminish the presence of the Holy Spirit. Okay, this wasn't because sin was in the camp. They, what they had to do was have their order, their affections, their allegiances reordered. All of us do that. We talk about that a lot at Grace, right? That the gospel demands that there is a reordering of all of our affections, our allegiances, and affiliations. And so the church is having to learn that we can't live according to the old ways. We can't choose sides. I'm a Hellenist. Well, I'm a Hebrew. To hell with you, right? Like, we can't do that anymore. It reorders all our affections, all our allegiances, all our affiliations with that. The third thing we see is that they are taking risk, that this is really risky. Because, again, if you don't understand the context, all seven people chosen are Hellenist. 
They all have Greek names. This is big, y'all. This isn't like, okay, those, those other people came over here and complained, so we'll take care of it. We'll throw them some extra bread, and hopefully they'll quiet down. That's not how the church responded. The church literally said, okay, y'all have a beef. Let's appoint some guys, and, and we'll put y'all in charge of addressing it. That's huge. This is risky with that. That's not the way we normally handle conflict. We try to, we try to patronize the people who seem to be coming with a grievance or something. We try to act on their behalf. We try to take over their agency. But no, the church is giving agency to these people who feel oppressed by appointing leaders from within their community to address the problem. This is radically subversive stuff to the way that the world operates. And I would, I would offer this. It is a direct reflection of Jesus' teaching and the way he operated. These disciples, these apostles, saw Jesus time and time again give agency and respect to the outcast, to the widows, to the tax collectors, to the prostitutes. He didn't patronize them. He didn't try to fix them. He brought them in. He included them. He gave them a place at the table. That's what Jesus is doing here, or the, the apostles are doing here. They are reflecting the nature and character of Jesus by giving agency to these people that have a legitimate beef. But also, it is overcoming this incredible animosity. They are willing. I, the amount of flack that they had to have caught for this within the larger community of being, because remember, the, the apostles are all Hebrew speakers, okay? They, there's not maybe one, but, but for the most part, they're all solid in the red camp, the Hebrew speaker camp, okay? They've lived it, breathed it, that's how they've been brought up. And their first major decision after replacing Judas is to share power with the blue camp to bring it into modern terminology. And not, and not like just a little bit like, hey, 100%, y'all get, get to do this with that. And listen, this changes everything from our story. This is a fulcrum point. It, again, if we don't know the context and we don't understand what's going on, we read this like something that is just an organizational, like, it's like, pro forma organizational stuff that they threw in there to kind of explain. No, this is a hinge, okay? This is a hinge passage because what happens when Donnie gets up next week and preaches about Stephen's sermon, which is going to blow your mind, it's Stephen who's preaching it. We don't know anything about Stephen until today that he's appointed this deacon. He's supposed to be serving tables, and yet next week we're going to see something radically different comes out of that. And it changes the course, it changes the trajectory of the whole church. Because up until now, they've been based in Jerusalem. Up until now, they've been going to the temple. 
Up until now, they've been solidly encamped within this Hebraic temple culture. But by this decision to appoint seven Hellenists into leadership in the church, the, the, the scope is going to move into the whole world. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up as we transition here. And I, I want to finish with this. So a few months ago, I, a, just a little more geek out, okay? Just a little more, a little more. Um, as I was, I'm, I'm reading this history of the, of the early church. If I go to Ethiopia, if we go to Ethiopia today, I can take you to churches that directly trace their lineage back to the apostles. If we go to Syria, I can take you to churches where we can directly trace the lineage back to the early apostles. I can take you to Chennai, India. And there is a church, right or wrong, that says we were founded by St. Thomas, one of the apostles, on St. Thomas Mount in Chennai. I can take you to that church that directly traces itself to the apostles. If I take you to Jerusalem today, I cannot do that. Now, there are Christian churches, but there is not a church in Jerusalem that traces its roots directly back to the apostles. Because what happens after the history that we see in the New Testament is the temple is destroyed at 70 AD. A great diaspora happens. The church that was in Jerusalem that was made up almost 100% exclusively of the Hebrew speakers. With that persecution, they chose to move out to a suburb, a small town outside of Jerusalem, and they maintained their insularity. They maintained their rigid cultural practice. Yes, they were started. They, they, They traced their roots back to Pentecost, to what we're reading. But they never got the bigger vision for unity. They stayed within their walled-off, small practices of Hebrew. And after the year 500, they're gone. They held on for five centuries. But eventually they withered away and they are lost to history. They ceased to exist. Y'all, we're here because of this decision. Because the apostles chose to act beyond their hurts, their prejudices, their presuppositions. They refused to act on holding on to power, cultural power, adhering to cultural patterns. They discerned somehow that the Holy Spirit was doing something that was beyond those things. And they let the Holy Spirit heal even the worst hurt possible, that of the Civil War. We come to this table in that same Spirit, by that same Spirit, that has reconciled every person to Christ, even the person we can't imagine worshiping with. That person is welcome 
in this body. This table knows no boundaries. No boundaries. The death of Jesus and the poured out blood of Jesus has reconciled all men and women of every race, every culture, every time into one body, the church. And we demonstrate that, we act on that when we come to the table and we eat of this bread and drink of this cup.